Hello and welcome to the first discourse episode of the 2021 season of the Religious Studies Project. Discourse is, of course, our monthly show in which we discuss how the news media is talking about religion this month. I'm joined this time by Ting Gawo. Say hello to everyone, Ting. Hi, hello everyone. Excited to be here. Great. And I'm also joined by Jacob Barrett. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, everyone. I'm Jacob Barrett. I'm a second year MA student at the University of Alabama in the Religion and Culture MA program. Wonderful. Um, And this is, I think, your first appearance on the show, Jacob. Uh, Ting, I know you've been on before. In fact, Ting and I uh, studied together at at the University of Edinburgh, you know, some time ago, we'll not go into Sometime that. Some time ago, let's put it that way, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave it vague. But you're joining us from Canada today, yes? Uh, actually, I'm still in Hong Kong. So um, ah. I will start my position as an assistant professor of uh, at the Department of Language Studies at the University of Toronto, uh, Scarborough, later. I'm, at the moment, I'm still in Hong Kong. Oh, well, that's that's great. That's even better. Now we cover three continents. That's uh, fantastic. <laughs> Yay. Um, Okay, we've each brought a story and the overall theme today is uh, classification matters, uh, stealing Russell McCutcheon's uh, cat phrase, not for the first time, but uh, you'll see why. And I want to kick off discussions today with a story that um, appeared in the New York Times recently um, entitled, Vaccine Resistors Seek Religious Exemptions, But What Counts as Religious? Now, I find this absolutely fascinating, not because the idea is in any way new. Anyone who's had any involvement with critical study of religion is going to be aware that the different ways that religion can be mobilized, the different kinds of meanings it can have in different discourses is, is a large part of what gives it its power. What's fascinating to me is that this is the first time I can think of in mainstream media that I've seen um, the issue of what counts as religion actually engaged with in any level of, of sort of critical awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of really interesting aspects to the, to the piece that maybe we can tease out in a minute. Um, but the overall story is that there's been a big spike in people seeking religious exemption from mandatory vaccination. Uh, in the US, the story is, is it's from the New York Times. And so the, the, the article is really pushing back against the idea of the simple, a common assumption that you'll find in the media that um, re- religious exemption is simply something that religious people do because their religion mm-hmm. requires them to do this. So, uh, uh, you know, as I said, this is, I, I think, uh, a unique example of finally some sort of critical religion finding its way into um, the mainstream uh, press. Um, Now, I've got a few sort of specific uh, issues with the piece nonetheless, but I I wanted to ask Ping and Jacob whether uh, there was anything in the story that that sprung out to them. Jacob, why don't you kick us off? I thought the article was interesting because a lot of the language in it was talking about like, they're going to claim religious exemption or so they hope like it was a lot of like kind of these like moments where we did see like you like you 
um, mentioned the rhetorical uses of religion or like the rhetorical, um, the rhetorical uses of the category of religion or religious exemption, where we see them recognizing that it making appeals to religious exemption is one tool in the tool belt that these people have that it's like, they don't want to get vaccinated. Their job is mandating it. What's something I can do to not get it? Ooh, what if I claim religion? That's kind of the light the article painted it in, which it was really interesting um, in the shift away from how I think it's most of the time characterized as like, well, yeah, duh, of course they're going to, like, of course they're going to claim religion. That's what they believe. Um, and so I just thought that was an interesting shift that we see this article make. You know, people in religious studies have been having that conversation for a long time, but seeing uh, that conversation bleed into the mainstream media in the form of a New York Times article was really interesting to me. In response to the story that David raised, I also f- find it really interesting. Like, like uh, Jacob mentioned, like David mentioned, that is a, a critical recognition of the category of, of religion, how in, in mainstream media that we need to think about religion more critically uh, in, in a more contextualized way, in a more, in a more complex way. Because uh, I feel uh, religion is quite often used to answer very complex questions, used as a simple answer to very complex questions. Uh, we, we've seen that from uh, most famously from the U.S. election, for instance, we often we almost identify right wing voters as uh, evangelicals uh, th- these ways and uh, anti vaxxers and another example of that. Uh, at the same time, there are many traditions or many ways of practicing religion, of practicing faith, of practicing culture that cannot be simply categorized into religion as we tend to think of religion in the popular discourse in, in mainstream media. But uh, I don't know if it's, uh, this is where I can mention a bit of that. Uh, that when I think of religion, for instance, in where I'm, I'm at the moment in Hong Kong, in larger in a larger part of the Sinophone Asia, there's no word for the way people do religion. Actually, for instance, today is the Middle Autumn Festival. It is, it's not a religious festival, but people burn incense for their ancestors. People do all sorts of things. People eat certain types of food, but nobody thinks that's religion. So if this case uh, takes place in, the, uh, in another context where the category of religion needs to be recognized, recognized to a certain point that it's an answer to uh, larger political social questions, then we we might have a hard time finding the right discourse to refer to all the things that people do. But there's no agreed upon term to describe all the practices and and traditions and uh, just lives. Mm. Um, I I also picked up kind of Think what Jacob was hinting at that there is there is still a hint of a more traditional way of viewing religion okay although they are recognizing that maybe the law is an area of confusion right there's still a sense of which you know that they're that religion is being used by bad actors mm-hmm. right rather than religion being something which is constructed and you know is of use primarily through situations like this nonetheless there was a couple of things which really struck me one was the the fact that they they had data on that when the non-religious category was removed there was a concurrent rise in religious exemptions 
And that is something I've always suspected. But I haven't actually seen data for that before. Well, that's fascinating. It doesn't tell us an awful lot, though, because the, the it doesn't mean that there's been any change in the motivations of the individuals, merely how they go about gaining or avoiding punishment for something that they want to do, right? right? But it was very interesting that the paper, the paper, the, the newspaper article included, um, I think, a recognition of the complexity of religious identity in these kind of decisions. So there was a quote from one of the people that they interviewed who said, there are many reasons that we don't take it, and faith is one of them. But there's this recognition that actually that that reasoning might include, you know, political identity, regional variations, family affiliations, maybe scientific uh, considerations. You know, all sorts of different motivations are going to go into into any complex decision like this. Um, but only some of those are recognized by the law and protected by the law. And I remember the the article talking about that now under these kind of claims that the employers were now in the business of deciding what's a religious claim, like what's a religious reason, what's a real religious reason that someone wouldn't want to get the vaccine and what's a fake reason or who's lying and who's being authentic. And that now it's on the employer to decide that. And then, you know, if the employer decides wrong, then it's up to the courts to decide, right? That we're in this space where, it's no longer that making these appeals to religion have to be decided if they're valid or not, have to be uh, the, the authenticity or the sincerity of the claimer are on trial. And yes, and I, that their faith, as the, as the people in the article said, is one of the reasons, you know, like, I don't know that they'd be claiming religious exemption if one of their other exemptions had worked, <laughs> you know, like if a, a claim to something else would have worked, but there's something strategic in making a claim to religion, claiming that it's about your belief, because how, how do you decide if that's real or not? How do you measure someone's like sincerity in their belief? You have to more or less take them at their word. It's a really effective tool in kind of claiming exemption to what's expected of everyone else, right? Mm-hmm. And there, there are cases where that sincerity has been something decided in a court which decides whether something is effectively a religion or not. There was a mm-hmm. case in, in Britain of the, I think it was called the Gnostic movement, who applied for charitable status, which is effectively how religions are recognised in British law. And uh, they were denied, their application was denied because, and they actually said, oh, we do think it's, uh, we do think it's sincere but it's not beneficial to society. <laughs> so there was there was this other aspect to what religion was, because of course the religion that's being recognised in these legal cases, based on sincere belief and you know this benevolent approach, is is uh, you know it's it's a very idealised version of Protestant Catholicism. Thing, go ahead. Yeah, that's really interesting. When when we when we were just discussing the legal recognition of religion or religious authenticity, that also gives the 
so-called secular but social institutional or political authority over one's belief, and that gives right also reinforces the hierarchy of religious matters of cultural matters, like the case David was mentioning. A certain religion is viewed more authentic or more religious, more more important than others, maybe uh, to the social context. And I remember uh, uh, my friend was telling me a case. In, in Canada, in Vancouver, I think in the 1980s, two Chinese churches took each other to, to the court for a dispute over a certain way of doing a ritual. And the court decided that it was a religious matter, that the secular court cannot decide on the religious matter. So that also <laughs> just reminds us a very intricate relationship between not just the church and the state, but different institutions, uh, different power relations at play in, in our world, in the supposedly secular or post-secular world. Let's uh, move on to the second uh, story then, because it follows perfectly on. Uh, Jacob, you've brought in a couple of stories which centre on sincere belief. I'm sure we've all seen <laughs> um, the um, recent abortion legislation that came out of Texas. And in the wake of um, you know, the days kind of after that, I was seeing a lot on Twitter um, of conversation about what tools do people have ready to them that they can use to kind of uh, make appeals against that? What do people have available to them that they can find ways around the law and still receive abortions in Texas? And one of the things that I was seeing were different Jewish groups were saying that they could claim religious exemption to the Texas law because an op-ed that I read from a rabbi was saying that Judaism values um, the potential of life, but recognizes that the potential of life is not the same as actual life. And so in certain forms of Judaism that, you know, that abortion is allowed in the case of, let's say, like risk to the mother. I was seeing lots of different um, things on Twitter, people saying like, Jews should take their case to the Supreme Court. This is a, this is a religious freedom violation. They can claim this. Um, and it struck me as really interesting because just about two years ago, I guess in 2019, um, the Satanic Temple tried something similar with Missouri's legislature abortion legislation. Different laws; it wasn't as restrictive as the Texas laws. And in Missouri, um, the specific thing I guess that the Satanic Temple was upset about was if you were going in for an abortion, you had to sign things that you recognize that life begins at conception. And they were saying that they don't believe that. Um, and so to go in for an abortion and have to sign that form was against their religious freedom. Um, and so they sued the state of Missouri and lost at the Missouri Supreme Court in 2019. It's looking like the case is in the pipelines to go to the U.S. Supreme Court, but um, we'll see how it shakes out. But I think these two cases are really interesting because I think people, this is me like making it up at this point, but I, I would assume that if Jewish groups got a case together, took it through the pipeline and made it to the Supreme Court, I would assume that their case would have a little more legitimacy um, than the case of the Satanic Temple, um, because I think the Satanic Temple has historically been this kind of group that nudges up against and shows the hypocrisy or shows the moments um, in religious freedom um, and in separation of church and state that when you're in the mainstream group, you take for granted, right? And they are, they've done a good job, you know, through taking their statues around to different places and setting um, statues up of their Satan figure next to the Ten Commandments at different government buildings, right, of moments pointing this out. And so I think there's the idea that, oh, well, they don't actually believe. They don't actually, but like, 
abortion isn't actually against their religion. They're just doing it because to prove a point. I'd be interested to see how it changes when Judaism gets entered into the conversation of, is that an actual belief? Is that a sincere belief versus, oh, just those people over here who do weird Satan stuff and like, you know, like how, how we're talking about these groups differently because I was seeing a lot on Twitter about Judaism. I didn't really hear a lot of conversation about the Satanic Temple happening. Um, there was a recent article that came out just a few days ago in light of the conversations about Judaism, talking back to the Satanic Temple. But yeah, I'd be interested to know your thoughts as well. Well, I also thought it was hilarious. The The article on the Satanic Temple that you shared comes mm-hmm. from a uh, conservative Catholic website. I think it's a news show. And there is a line in it where it does say they're not even real Satanists. Right. <laughs> which I thought was hilarious because um, it does sort of suggest that they'd prefer actual, like, you know, Satan worshipping um, right. deists rather than, you know, which, as, as it correctly pointed out, the Satanic Temple is... You know, it's the other lineage of Satanism, which is a sort of theatrical humanism. But they are deliberately making the point about religious exemption laws. It's not an accident. This is something they've deliberately set out to do. And it shares this with the uh, Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Uh, You know, wearing a colander on your head was also basically an attempt to troll um, Mm -hmm. religious exemption laws because of this central issue. How can a court decide what is or is not sincere belief? Um, Apart from the larger issue of, well, what makes that belief religious, whether it's sincere or not? There are many other contexts where the sincerity of the belief doesn't come into it. We don't, for instance, say that um, an act of terrorism wasn't as bad because the person sincerely believed something. We don't, mm-hmm. you know, um, school shootings or something. We don't say, well, it, it was a sincere belief. I may not agree with it, but it's his religious right to, you know, right. we don't we do not do that. It's right. only in this one specific context, right? Sure. Because uh, earlier when we were discussing uh, the story about uh, abortion law and religious exemptions, what counts as the how religion, different religions play into this. And David mentioned in other cases, uh, for instance, other cases of violence, other case, especially in other cases of violence, then the framework, How what's the framework for us to talk about this? Uh, if we can still claim the religious framework to discuss these matters. And so the story that I had in mind was uh, what has been happening in Afghanistan and as we all know, what has been happening. And very quickly, I also saw on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, all these images of women uh, covered up in or in black used as a way of describing, I guess, uh, the suppression, uh, oppression uh, happening. So uh, first of all, of course, it's the kind of supposedly religious nature of, of oppression, uh, especially in to refer to cultures or people who are always perceived as distant uh, and different. Uh, but there's also a very, it's also gendered orientalism. That, that's the old, old story. It's always women's body covered up and it's always women's images used as a cultural marker, but to discuss something 
that actually is political, that is actually is terrorism, for instance. It's not just something uh, religious. It's not just something cultural, but it's a political matter and it's uh, a social matter. And of course, we and we see that in different types of social media. We uh, Very early on, many years ago, uh, almost decades ago, we all remember that image, the Time magazine cover image. The photographer, Jody Bieber, uh, photographed a young Afghan woman and she appeared as kind of deformed to kind of depict violence. So we, we definitely we, we've seen that in Western media. But what makes me think that there's a larger issue there is because I'm, I'm from a moment I'm in, in Asia and a lot of the content shared on social media are by Asians, like signed from Asia, I'm talking about in, in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, in mainland China. So this structure, this structure of power, this definition of religion, actually, it's not universal, but it is something transnational. And the discourse of clash of civilizations is not only, I guess, popular in the US context, but it's popular in the Sinophone sphere as well. So there are different levels of power structure, who brought these ideas, who came up with these ideas, who brought these ideas to different parts of the world, who has the authority to claim them as uh, an authoritative interpretation of culture and religion uh, and people and violence. So that the, the religious and gendered framework of violence that has become universal and global it is in itself a not just an old banal imperial uh, kind of travel history, but that is very similar to that. So, yeah. I've, I've certainly noticed in terms of the orientalization um, aspect, I've certainly noticed that there's been a real shift since the Taliban retook Afghanistan of constantly referring to um, women and girls. They always say yeah. women and girls now. They don't say yeah. men and boys, but it's always right. women and girls. And I thought, yeah. I think this is to make them sound even more vulnerable, right? So this is the yeah. idea in the West, we have to act to protect these vulnerable women and girls, which, of course, is just a way of uh, justifying further imperial uh, violence. Right. And, and yet we never present the actions of the West in the Middle East in a religious yeah. context, right? We are always acting for the safety of, of us or, you know, for, to protect other people. But the the other's actions are always interpreted through this lens of, of religious motivation, you know, and especially, when, you know, when we're talking about the control over women's bodies, which, as we've seen, um, is alive and well in the West, but uh, we, we don't we don't view this as uh, as a religious doctrine, religious, which is causing yeah. us to invade other countries. That's what they do, right? The the abortion case, uh, the abortion law, and w w the events unfolding in Afghanistan, they didn't happen not exactly at the same time, but around the same time framework. Like, so we both one is viewed as religious violence, religious extremism. But another is is not quite so that yeah it's really interesting and also as, as if we all the images about the disappearance of women as they are covered up to refer to that violence. It's an interesting point you make about how we classify one as religious violence and one is not. 
I guess, yeah. some other form of violence. I think because, right, in, a, in, an, in the Western context, these abortion laws, while like having religious motivation, are still operating under the kind of like dominant group's ideas, right? Like they still exist within um, like a Western Protestant idea about uh, religion, how it works, and, you know, they benefit mm-hmm. those groups. And so I, when the state is, is that, you know, when, when the laws like benefit that, that group, they get the privilege of not being separated out as religious violence. It's just, um, and also maybe not even violence, right? Like maybe we're not like people aren't classifying it even as violence that, you know, there's a huge majority, there's a huge chunk of the the nation that was like celebrating that legislation, right? Saying, that look at this win, look at that, look at what was accomplished. But we see it across the world in a different context under a different set of religious and cultural norms that we see as threatening to us and projected as like, ooh, look at those oppressed people over there who have to cover up. Look how sad they are. Um, like you were saying, yeah. like those those sad women and girls who aren't going to have futures anymore, right? Like we, we do this... Like, yeah, the othering, otherizing. Right. Like, no one's saying, look at those sad women and girls in Texas, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> in the same way that we're talking about <laughs> Afghanistan. It's so interesting because actually, both the, 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 the languages, the discourse is used to describe both events uh, are out of this kind of framework of protection of the women or celebrating something we we are doing good for the women. Right. But in, of, of course, in very different ways, but for the abortion law as well, we are protecting the women, we are protecting lives, but we're, essentially we're protecting women. For And the disappearing women discourse or images as well, that we need to protect them. But in, in the women, in both cases, women are seen as this, just something that they're without yeah. their own agency, without their own courage, without their, their own narratives. But we don't recognize this as a problem because we it's almost this, we can only use the gender framework, but that's only familiar making sense to us to refer to something. Sometimes it's something that we don't want to make sense of in order to protect us, but some, sometimes it's something that we don't want to give others the power of interpretation. Mm. And it was a it was a classic part of Said's argument in Orientalization was mm. the portrayal of the East as yeah. lacking agency and yeah, um, you know easily sort of dominated, almost sort of mindless sometimes. So it, yeah. that portrayal is still there. You know that everyone in China is enslaved by a totalitarian oh, yeah. government, yeah, or yeah. everyone in the Middle East is oppressed by you know Islam. These discourses still go on, but we don't, for instance, view the actions of the US in the same way, although, you know, there is clear historical and contemporary evidence that the discourse of um, evangelical um, (laughs) millennial Christianity is an enormous influence uh, on policy. Yeah, And, and sometimes religions evoked to kind of as a way to give these people agency, but in a way that's done that these different religions are just ahistorical and out of context. So a counter-argument to their own, uh, so they have their own culture or religion from this Confucianism or Islam or Judaism as well, or Buddhism, but these religions are seen as just as ancient 
but in a very ahistorical way, as if they don't evolve. Like mm-hmm. but, but in the case of the West, for instance, Christianity, we, we know that different types and there are evangelicals and millennial evangelicals and they evolve with our social institutions, they evolve, evolve with our changing times. Uh, mm-hmm. the, again, that's a different hierarchy of religion or re- how religion is used very differently to right. justify uh, well, different, yeah. And, and that's a really interesting point too, because I think that does really important work for the dominant, you know, like for the dominant West, I guess. And in, in saying like, look, like our stuff has evolved. Our stuff is new. Our yeah. stuff keeps up with the times. Your stuff is old and oppressive and yeah. like stuck in the middle ages. And we're here to bring you religious freedom. And we're here to bring you yeah. what, you know, and like, look, we've got it. You don't, we're here to bring it to you. And that's like yeah. really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the, the like, well, Saba Mahmoud argued in, in her work, the, mm-hmm. uh, can critique be secular? Oh, no, the, another, sorry, an, another mm-hmm. of, of her works. Politics about, secular, uh, about secularism. Mm-hmm. Like, the, so those, Nations that are not secular, but in the Protestant sense, right. are viewed as yeah, just kind of conservative and traditional and backward and uh, oppressive. But only those who learn to be secular, but only in a certain way, that are the advanced nations, the the new civilizations. So that yeah, and I kind of along the same thing. I was just reading something by Tracy Fassenden. Um, and she was talking about uh, one of her ideas is talking about how secularism in the move to shift from replacing Protestant values with American values that then we then relabel as secularism, that it mm. doesn't do away with the Protestant values that we're trying to get away from. It doesn't do, yeah. do away with those assumptions. They just remain. Um, and she says in unmarked ways. Um, yeah. And I think that's a, a really interesting way of thinking about it. Right. That like in in our exportation of secularism around the world. And in the quest for democracy abroad, but like, that's not a, it's, it's still, you know, exporting these Protestant assumptions to other places and um, in ways that I think even the people doing it don't realize that that it's happening, right? Yeah. So the Protestant assumption, even in post-Protestant frameworks, like the, right. the book that I had in mind by Svan Mahmoud is Religious Difference in the Secular Age, a Minority Report. And then the point she raised in that book is the a lot of these Protestant ideas or religious ideas or secular ideas, they are transnational ideas. Uh, the other religions as well, most religions have always been transnational. So they can't be put into a small box as something like unchanging entities, but they're always evolving. But a lot of the, even the violence as well, but religious violence, uh, Protestant violence, for instance, uh, colonialism, imperialism, they are all transnational. They have transnational impacts. So in that book you mentioned, so the things people view as oppressive, as conservative, but they are left behind. They are the legacy of colonialism rather than of so-called oppressive Islam. Right. <laughs> There's just a lot of things going around my head that I don't necessarily want to um, open like another can of worms when we're already <laughs> nearly 40 minutes in. I think what I'll do then is we can wrap it up there. I think that's been a really interesting sure. conversation and um, maybe people will, will comment here and there, we can maybe pick up on the conversation later. 
Um, but uh, thanks so much uh, for joining me, both of you. It's been great. Um, if you have anything you want to uh, plug uh, just now, um, be my guest. I was looking at another book. Uh, I think most of us are familiar with Do Muslim Women Need Saving? Valley Love Blue Gold. Uh, but she, in this book, of course, she offers the a view that similar to Salman Mahmoud is that a lot of things that women in so-called Islamic countries are dealing with uh, in the results of international politics, for instance, or political corruption. That's an issue, a universal issue. But we need to contextualize these issues uh, in different societies, of course, but also we need to recognize, recognize the not quite religious roots to these problems. Absolutely. So, and I'm and, sure and, that they would... I'm sure that amongst the many things they need saved from is being bombed by uh, Western powers. <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> I'll rush past that comment. Uh, Jacob, anything you want to leave the listeners with? I don't think so. Great. Simple as that. Thanks both. And um, thanks for listening, everyone. And uh, we'll see you next month. Bye. Bye. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Andy Alexander and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Savannah Finver and our opportunities digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews. Video editing by Alison Isidore. Podcast transcription by Jaden Bartashius. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes and all other portals. Thanks for listening.